with that, if you uh, have your copy of God's Word and open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're taking a, a break from our journey through the Gospel of John, and we're going to study in 1 Samuel 3 this morning. And as, as human beings, we are created to, to be relational. And uh, each of us develops in uh, relationships in different ways. Uh, women, uh, most women form close relationships by, by talking together. But men, uh, we form close relationships usually by not talking uh, together uh, or by, by doing uh, something together, right? Men can go hunting and say uh, three words over a course of a week and really have felt like we bonded uh, with one another. Uh, but, but for women, it's, it's different. Uh, and uh, as, as relational beings, we, we love being reunited with loved ones. Now, whether family or friends, we enjoy hearing from uh, old friends or, or distant relatives that we haven't talked to in a while. Uh, we, we love hearing how they're doing and what has taken place in their lives since we last uh, spoke with them. And uh, in the same way that we love reunions, there's also a, a pain that we feel uh, after being separated from loved ones. Uh, and that when there's a, a relational distance, it pains our hearts. Uh, we don't like that uh, separation and distance, not in, in human relationships and not in our relationship with God. And I would say there's probably no more discouraging and disheartening experience than when we feel distant from the Lord. And that di- discouragement and, and separation can be caused by many, th- many things. Sometimes we are, are discouraged because it feels like God is not present with us. It seems like He is not there to help us in our present circumstances. At other times we are discouraged when we look at the world around us. And we see uh, the, the world seeming to be out of control. Sometimes we are hurting as we experience pain in those human relationships. Sometimes we we doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness to us, even as he feels distant from us. And there are times when we so desperately want to hear uh, something from God. We want to feel connected to him. We want to know uh, what he wants from us. But we want to know how things are going to turn out in our life. We want to know and be reassured that he is still there with us. Uh, ultimately, we want to connect relationally with an invisible God. But, but how do we do that? How do we hear uh, from a God who doesn't speak audibly to us? That's what we're going to see this morning. As we come to, to 1 Samuel, uh, we are in, really in the time of the Judges. The Judges uh, goes right into 1 Samuel. Uh, and Judges is summed up uh, at the end of the book with, with a simple statement that everyone was doing right uh, what was right in their own eyes. Uh, and that was an indication of individual morality, just like uh, our own world today. Whatever you want to do, go do it. Uh, and Judges describes uh, really the, the, the low point in Israel's uh, history, or one of the low points. Uh, there's much suffering and injustice in the land, as we've looked at the first few chapters in First Samuel in previous months. We see that the leaders of Israel are, themselves are uh, sinful and unjust. Uh, that uh, Eli is, is the, the high priest, uh, and his, his boys, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked. Uh, they are despising uh, the offerings of God. They're mistreating the people. They're uh, committing sexual immorality uh, with uh, women. Uh, and this is known throughout Israel. And it is a tremendous stumbling block. Uh, and in First Samuel uh, chapter 1, we were introduced to a woman named Hannah, uh, who was uh, barren and who was greatly desiring a child. And she goes to the tabernacle, and she's there with Eli, and she's praying, and she prays for a son. And she promises that if she would, uh, the Lord would bless her with a son, that she would dedicate the son to serve God all his days. Uh, and the Lord answers that prayer, and we, we find young Samuel. And young Samuel is, uh, is uh, born, and then is taken to the tabernacle, and then he's going to serve uh, alongside Eli. And he's going to be uh, discipled and taught by uh, Eli, serving there in the tabernacle. And uh, right as Hophni and Phinehas are, are in the, the height of their wickedness, you have God working slowly and silently growing up and maturing young Samuel to be a faithful man of God, even as the priests are not faithful. And then we arrive at 1 Samuel 
3, and we're not sure how much time has, has passed since the events of chapter 2. Could have been days, months, or years, but now we're going to see the Lord's plans uh, begin to come to fruition. And if you look at the beginning of this chapter, 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, there's going to be no word from God. Uh, and that's going to be significant. But by the end of the chapter, uh, verse 21, uh, there, there's going to be a prophet in the land communicating God's word to God's people. Uh, so this chapter is going to be about how God calls Samuel to be a prophet to Israel and how God is going to reveal himself to the nation uh, through his prophet Samuel. And this passage is going to, to show us, uh, as modern-day followers of Christ, uh, how we can have hope because God still does reveal himself to his people through his word. But you might say that is, is kind of obvious, that God communicates through his word. Uh, but I'd ask a, a different question that we're going to, to answer along the way as we study this passage. Uh, what is the significance of God revealing himself through his word? Why is that important, and what does it mean? And this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to see five implications of God revealing himself to us in and through his word. And before we look at those implications, I'd love to to pause and to pray, uh, and then we will begin our study. But Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would unite our hearts to fear and worship you. Grant us faith and wisdom and insight into your scriptures that you have inspired, that you have given to us for our edification, to to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. Help us to see and believe all that you have given to us in your word. May it transform us and may it glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the first implication that we're going to see, as you have there on your outline, is seen in verse 1. Now, the implication is that the absence of God's word is an indication of disobedience. Verse 1 says, Now the young boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli, and the word from Yahweh was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And when that little statement uh, is, is made known, that there was no word from Yahweh, that is, that is significant. It means something because, number one, the priests and the Levites throughout the land were commanded to teach the people the law of God. So if there is no word going forth, it means that the priests and the Levites during this time of the judges, they are not teaching the people as they should. Secondly, it also means that there is no additional revelation from a prophet. Now, yes, at the end of chapter two, we had a, an unnamed prophet come onto the scene and, and rebuke Eli because he didn't deal with the sins uh, of his sons. But there's no regular prophet there in the land giving a, a word from God. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways God showed his displeasure with Israel was to remove his word from the land. We're going to be reading Amos this month. And in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Part of God's judgment is to remove the, the, the presence and influence of his word upon the land of Israel. And this, is, this should be devastating because all true believers are dependent upon the, the word of God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, uh, God said that he was striving to instruct and to show Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. He was trying to get them to understand what? That they didn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And so when the word of God is absent from the people of God, that means something. And when something uh, that should be present is absent, that that indicates that something else is going on. This is is seen uh, usually in the the Olympic Games. uh, When uh, a nation uh, has a disagreement with the host nation, what do they usually do? They refrain from attending and participating in the Olympics. The U.S boycotted the 1980 games in Moscow uh, after the USSR invaded Afghanistan. And then the the USSR refrained from participating in the 1984 games in Los Angeles, uh, citing that their athletes were feeling threatened by a hostile environment. 
But when God's word is absent from God's people, it is an indication of conflict and disobedience. It's an indication that the people of God are straying and wandering away from him. And so but how do we take this and what's the significance of this for the, for the Christian? How is it that the absence of God's word is a definitive indication that there is disobedience in the life of a Christian here and now? Well, first, in Colossians 3.16, we are commanded to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So, so if we are not having the word dwelling within us, we are in disobedience. Secondly, if the word of God is not present in our lives, we're also guilty of the sin of ungodliness. And that is a sin that we don't typically think about too often. But the, the late Jerry Bridges does an excellent job of explaining this this reality in his, in his book, Respectable Sins. He says, Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence upon God. You can readily see, then, that someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. We rub shoulders with such people every day in the course of our ordinary activities. They may be friendly, courteous, and helpful to other people, but God is not at all in their thoughts. And they may even attend church for an hour or so each week, but then live the remainder of the week as if God doesn't exist. They are not wicked people, but they are ungodly. That's what we need to, to understand, this sin of ungodliness. Uh, that it, the absence of God's word in our life means something. It means that we are probably not uh, focusing on him at all. And that, that's a sobering thought. That sometimes we go, we attend church on Sunday morning, and we think about God, we sing to him, and then we depart from here, and then we may not think about God until we're driving to church the next Sunday morning. And, and that is not as it should be. The, the absence of God's word in our life means something. And if you think of it this way, if God is revealing himself to his people through his word, if God's word is not present in our life, then God is not revealing himself to us. And then there's no communication from God in our hearts and in our lives. And you could say that the absence of God's word is going to be both an effect and a cause. It, it, the absence of God's word in our lives is going to be an effect of our own sinfulness, right? When we are struggling and knowing something's going on in our life, when we're, when we're giving in to sin, what's the last thing that we want to do? We, want to, we don't want to go and, and be near God. We don't want to come and hear from him in his word. So the absence of God's word in our life is an effect of man's sin, but it's also the cause of additional sinfulness, right? Because when we're in sin, what do we need most? We need the word of God in our life to counsel us, to give us instruction. But the, the word of, uh, of or sin will drive us from the word. And so our, what begins to happen is a snowball effect. Uh, that if we stay away from God and his word, uh, we're, we're just going to wander more and more into sin. And because God's word and man's sin are, are both polarizing in nature, it's going to end up driving us uh, in whatever direction we are beginning. If we're in God's word regularly and desiring to pursue him, uh, we're going to be driven in a particular direction towards God. And if we are not in God's word but giving in to sin, that's going to drive us away from God's word. And we're going to continue going uh, even more so in the direction that we are already headed. So the absence of God's word creates a void that sin will happily fill. So with this first verse, we have, we have to ask a, a question of our own lives. Is God's word present in my life? Is it present or is it absent? And if it's absent, that, that means something. It's not insignificant. And, and the word being present in your life isn't just a matter of owning the Bible. We venture to say we, we all own multiple Bibles in our homes. And simply owning a Bible or putting it under your pillow uh, does not count as having the Word in your life. The, the Word needs to be in you. You need to, to read it. You need to meditate upon it. You need to memorize it, to reflect upon it. You need to call Scripture to mind in those moments when you're tempted to sin. The Word of God has to be in you. And this is more than just simply uh, a matter of reading the Word of God. 
right? Having the word in you is more than just a head knowledge, right? You're, you're probably all familiar with, with what the journaling that we encourage. And, and really, we encourage KFCA that knowledge leads to faith, leads to a transformation of our character, leads to a transformation of our actions. That's how we grow spiritually. And reading it and having the word in us is the beginning point of that spiritual growth. It's not the end of it, but you're not, it's always more than that, uh, never less. And this first implication gives us hope because it points to a solution in God's word. Uh, that uh, if there's disobedience, we need to turn to the word of God. Now, the second implication that we see in verses 2 through 10 is that the call of God's word is for individuals to respond. So we have this, this general setting in verse 1, and then we're going to move in to a particular situation on a particular day there in the tabernacle. And what we have in the beginning of verse 2, it says, And it happened at that time, as Eli was lying down in his pillow, now his eyesight had begun to fade, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh, where the ark of God was. And then Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said... I did not call. Go back. Lie down. So he went and lay down. And then Yahweh called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call you, my son. Go back. Lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, nor had the word of Yahweh been revealed to him. So Yahweh called Samuel again for the third time, And he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that Yahweh was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Yahweh, for your slave is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And then Yahweh came and stood and called, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your slave is listening. What we see here are the events in in the tabernacle on a particular night. And we see that that the lamp of God, uh, which is the the light of the the candlesticks, there were certain candlesticks that were lit uh, in the the tabernacle uh, each evening. And so by the the words in verse, uh, where was it? Where it says that the candles were low, it's saying this is just before the morning time. And as, uh, as you know, Samuel has been asleep, and three times he's heard uh, the voice of God calling to him. And each time he goes to, to Eli, and Eli is uh, initially saying, no, no, I didn't call you. And Eli eventually catches on, uh, and then he, he instructs Samuel to respond to the call of God uh, as God is calling to him uh, and comes and and is there speaking to him by his bed. Now, verse nine it says that he or verse ten came and stood uh, and called as at other times. Uh, Eli eventually uh, understands what is happening and and we see that in Samuel's response there's a there's a contrast here between him and between uh, the sons of Eli. Because Eli or Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, they've been warned. There's been judgment pronounced, and they have not turned from their ways. But here, young Samuel, who's been prepared in the background by God, he hears uh, and responds to God in faith. He says, "I'm here uh, to serve. What do you want me to do?" And uh, this is the the emphasis, and it raises a, an important question of how does God speak to us today? Is God going to speak to us in in this same manner here and now? And I would urge you to keep your keep your hand here and turn with me over to, to Hebrews chapter one, because Hebrews chapter one is going to going to show us that God speaks to us in in a different way at this present time. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Does God, having spoken long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds? 
who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing of sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much more better than the angels, uh, so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So Hebrews is going to inform us that God has spoken in the past uh, in dreams and visions, but now God has revealed himself to us in the person uh, of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the, the written word that we have before us. And uh, that's what God is, is calling uh, us to hear. The, the vision and manner of the call are not the emphasis here in 1 Samuel 3. What is important uh, is that God calls and young Samuel responds to God's call uh, upon him. And each of us every single day is bombarded with some type of a call to our own attention. Sometimes it's via emails. How many of you get junk uh, text messages? That's kind of the, the new thing. Uh, those are so bothersome. Uh, and uh, I've, I've received a bunch of those recently. But we're, we're constantly bombarded, whether uh, emails, text messages, uh, phone calls, sometimes junk mail. Right? It's more rare when I get an actual piece of mail that I need uh, than, than when I get junk mail. But we, we are constantly having to, to naturally prioritize all of these calls for our attention and calls for a response. Right? Hey, you can, you can save now on solar uh, and you know, whatever it may be. You're, you're going to prioritize what that is. But sometimes you may get a, a jury summons right? and you're going to respond differently uh, to that, op- that opportunity to take a survey or save on solar. Uh, you're going to treat that jury summons differently. Right? If you, if you buy Past that jury summons, you may get another summons uh, or another notice that you're going to get uh, in trouble for. So by comparison, uh, a, a response to a holy and sovereign God, we, we have to prioritize far above even a jury summons. That when God is calling for us to respond to his word, that is the utmost priority. And in God's word, we have truths to believe and we have commands to obey. And those commands of God demanding our obedience, we are either going to, to receive them or we are going to reject them. And so, so that next question, even as we see here, how is it that we are responding to uh, God's call uh, to uh, us? How are we responding when the, when the word of God calls to us, when it instructs us, when it tells us what to believe and what to do? How are we responding to God's call in our lives? Am I responding to God's initial call to turn from my sin and to trust in Christ completely for my salvation? Have I responded to that call? If I've responded to that call, am I then living uh, the life that Christ is calling me to, to, to put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ? To live out a life of continual repentance. There's a, there's a big U-turn in our lives and then smaller U-turns as we turn from individual patterns of sin in our hearts and in our lives. That is what Christ is calling us to. That's the life that we are to live. And and we look at this narrative. What was interesting is Samuel has been serving in the tabernacle for a period of time. And then what does verse 7 say? It says that for a a period of time, young Samuel was exactly like Hophni and Phinehas. In chapter 2, we had a declaration that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who were serving as priests, says that they didn't know the Lord. And in verse 7 here, we see that there was a time that Samuel didn't know the Lord. But it says Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The indication is he's going to know the Lord in the future. And simply being in the church, simply being around God's people doesn't necessarily mean that you know God in a personal and saving way. That's significant. The only relationship that we can have with God comes through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, in His life, death, and resurrection. And we have to place our faith and trust in Him in order to have a relationship with God the Father. And this second implication gives us hope, just like the first one, because we see that God reveals Himself to us through His Word. And He's showing us that we need to respond to Him in faith. God has a call upon each of us, and are we going to receive it or will we reject it? Then there's a third implication in verses 11 through 14. That the judgment of God's word should give chills to everyone. 
So in verse 10, Samuel responded and said, Your slave is listening. Verse 11, And Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am going, or I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will establish against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons have been bringing a curse on themselves. But he did not rebuke them. Now, therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The sobering first message that you have from God, right? God doesn't waste any time in giving young Samuel a message of judgment. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this message of judgment, and it's going to cause everyone who hears it, their ears to tingle. It's like th- this message is going to be like taking a, a hammer to a bell. And, when, and that vibration is going to go throughout the air, and everyone is not only going to hear it, but they're going to feel it. This is a, a heavy declaration. And God is saying that he's going to bring upon the house of Eli the the judgment that he promised through that unnamed prophet at the end of chapter 2. And Eli knew the sins of his sons and he didn't restrain them. He didn't act. Eli is still the high priest when he sees his sons who are functioning as priests. When he's seeing them walking in sin, he should have removed them. But he didn't. And this brought judgment not only upon his sons, but also upon him. It's a sobering thought for parents, right? And this is, this is a bold declaration here because it says, The iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So how is it that, that there can be no redemption here? Well, really, they, they are re- rejecting the means of their salvation. They are rejecting God and their Their desecration of the offerings of God are showing a severe disrespect for God himself. So the one that they need to turn to in order to be rescued from their current sins, they have rejected. They've turned away from their only means of salvation. And this is, again, made obvious by the nature of their sin. And so their judgment is sealed first by them and their own actions. And then here what we see is that it's being sealed also by God. This is a, a declaration of judgment that we need to, to pay attention to and to take heed to. We've kind of made our ears dull to proclamations of judgment in God's word. Well, we, we tend to try to minimize them. But we shouldn't do that. Now, there are some messages of impending doom that we can ignore. I remember back in early 2016, there was a, a New York Post article you know, published a video uh, saying that there was a a killer planet rapidly heading towards Earth. A, a brief video saying that uh, in January of that year, that the scientists had discovered a new planet, Planet Nine, and it takes 20,000 years for Planet Nine to to circumnavigate our our solar system, and that as it would pass through and and uh, the a ring of asteroids in our solar system and it would hit some of those asteroids and it would come those asteroids would come hurtling into the earth and that you know the video predicted that some of those asteroids could hit earth that very year but the video ended by saying that if you haven't done your taxes you should also still file them because the IRS will hunt you down even if the world ends It's it's sufficient to say, again, there are some messages of impending doom that we can ignore, that we can immediately disregard. But the proclamations of judgment in God's word, we should never dismiss. Because we need to trust, we need to be convinced that every proclamation of judgment in God's word, it either has already taken place in the past, and we see that throughout Scripture. God promises judgment, and then he brings it about. That's what we're going to see with Eli's house uh, later on in First Samuel. Every proclamation of judgment either has already taken place, or it will take place in the future. And we need to be convinced of that reality. 
The judgment of God should cause us to pause, to think, to ponder. And it is good and necessary to ponder such judgment. As we just read through Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes says it's better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of rejoicing. It's better to, to contemplate our own deaths because as we read today, we're all headed that way. We're all going to return to the dust one day. And Hebrews 9:27 says, as it is pointed for man to die, once after that comes judgment. And if we are uh, the, among those who have trusted in Christ, we'll stand before God, not in judgment for our sins, but in judgment uh, and evaluation of how we have utilized our time here on the earth. We will be re- rewarded for how we utilize everything that was entrusted to us. But if for those who do not know Christ, that there will be judgment. For, for rejecting the one who lived and died for them and also for their sins. This is intended to be sobering and scary. Again, it just raises the question of, do I have a healthy fear of God's judgment? Do I, do I have that resonating feeling in my heart and in my mind when God's judgment is proclaimed? But usually the answer is no. So it raises that question, do I really believe, do I really trust God's word that when he says there's going to be judgment, that there actually will be? This is what we need to, to contemplate and to spend time thinking about. But God's judgment also gives us hope, and we talked about that as well, because when there is injustice in our lives and in our world, we want to, to hope and pray that God will address that, that injustice. And uh, when we are being sinned against, uh, the only way that some of those things are going to be addressed is by God's judgment. When there's great and grave, grievous sin against us or in the world around us, uh, it's okay to pray for God's justice to intervene. God promises that all sin will either be addressed on the cross or on the final day at the great white throne. And we need to entrust ourselves to that. So even this is a source of hope. We've seen thus far that the absence of God's word is an indication of disobedience. We've seen that the call of God's word is for individuals to respond and that the judgment of God's word should give chills to everyone. But a fourth implication in verses 15 through 18 is the message of God's word demands to be proclaimed. If you look with me at these verses, we see how Samuel responded to this word from the Lord. So Samuel lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. And he said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good in his eyes. And so we, we see Samuel's initial response to this, this message that he received from the Lord. He's, he's afraid to pass it on. And we, I think we can all identify with that. Sometimes it is uh, a, a scary feeling that we have when we know we have to, to bear bad news to somebody. We have to, to warn or exhort somebody for, to turn from the path that they are currently on. And, and Samuel, as a young boy, is, is hesitant to, to, to speak everything that w- was entrusted to him. But Eli, even in his old age and even in being disobedient to God in a particular area of disciplining his sons, he shows that he does ultimately love the Lord. And we're going to see this here because he is going to teach young Samuel a very important lesson. If you receive a message from God, you can't hold that back. You can't hold back any portion of it. And Eli says, if you hold back any portion of it, may that happen to you. A sobering lesson that he's going to teach young Samuel. That the message of God's word demands to be proclaimed. The messenger cannot sit on the message without delivering it to the intended audience. There's a portion in, in Jeremiah 20 where he describes 
what began to happen to him internally when he had received a word from God and he didn't want to go and proclaim it to the people of Judah. He didn't want to go and speak it and he begins to describe what he felt internally. Jeremiah 20 verses 7 through 9, he says, Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot after hearing this this message eli says samuel you have to speak it don't hold it in and eli's quiet resignation in verse 18 shows that ultimately he still loves the lord he says may may yahweh do what is right in his sight even if that means bringing judgment upon eli even if that means bringing judgment upon eli's sons Because you know what, Yahweh, you do what you need to do, what will honor and glorify you. When when we have life-changing news, either for good or for bad, we have this urge to announce it. it. It's easy to announce good news. It's more difficult to announce bad news. But there is a reality and a responsibility that when we have good news or bad news, when we have a message from God, from His Word, we need to proclaim it. We see this illustrated wonderfully if you keep your finger here and go over to Second Kings chapter 6. We see that the city of Samaria had been besieged and was surrounded and there was a famine in the city. A grievous famine. They had been surrounded by an, an army of Arameans. Then in chapter 7, beginning in verse 3, it says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate of the city of Samaria. And they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they put us to death, we will die. They've realized all is vanity, right? <laughs> hey, we're going to die in the city or we go, we're going to die with the Arameans. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And then they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans. But behold, there was no one there. Now the Lord had caused the camp of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great military force, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and forsook their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. So these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp and entered one tent and ate and drank. And they carried from there silver and gold and clothes. And they went and hid them and they returned and entered another tent and carried them from there also and went and hid them. So these lepers have come across the plunder of an entire army. And the city behind them is starving. There was cannibalism and a lack of food so great in that city and then they have all of this food available to them and this is what they realize in verse 9 then they said to one another we are not doing right this day is a day of good news but we are keeping silent if we wait until morning light punishment will overtake us so now let us go and tell the king's household they realize that they had this good news that would immediately change the life of everybody in the city. And they understood if they held that news inward and only to themselves, that there would be judgment that would come for them. You had this good news and you refused to share it with those in need. They understood that. And now we are not prophets, but as followers of Christ, you and I have been entrusted with a message. 
right? Second Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, and God desires to make his appeal through us. And the message that we go and communicate to others, we, we call people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we have the message of the gospel that has been entrusted to us and that we are called to go and proclaim. And if we hold that message in, there will one day be a time where we have to answer for that. We have to realize if we have that message and we're not proclaiming it, we need to agree with the lepers. That we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. That, that, that's, that, that's the gospel. Well, we have a responsibility. We cannot remain silent. And again, if we understand uh, the judgment of God, and if it's giving us uh, chills, if it's making our ears tingle as it should, then we should also be willing to go forth and proclaim the message of good news to the world around us. Refusing to pass on a message reveals a hatred for others. To withhold information from them shows a contempt for their life. I love what uh, Penn Gillette says of the, the magical uh, act, Penn and Teller. He says this. Now, he's an atheist, but he understands the importance of evangelism far better than some Christians. He says this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of the doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Those are the words of an, of an atheist. He says he appreciates it when people come and, and seek to, to share with him because it expresses a, a deep concern for his well-being eternally. Do we have that same feeling? Have we arrived at that same conclusion? Do we view ourselves as ambassadors? Do we view ourselves as, as those who have been given and entrusted a message a message of reconciliation. Have you handled the message of the gospel faithfully? Have you shared it and proclaimed it with others? Have you been burdened for others? And again, we don't even have a, a message uh, only of judgment. We have a message that, that ends with hope and reconciliation and eternal life and encouragement. We have a message that begins with us as sinners and ends with Christ dying on our behalf. That, that is the message. That's the good news that we get to proclaim. And we need to be bold and willing to proclaim it. Not leaving out the bad news. Right? What did Eli say to Samuel? If you leave out one portion of it, may that happen to you. We, it's easy to proclaim the good news without the bad news. But there's no reason for good news if we don't understand uh, the, the, our current state and our current position as sinners before a holy God. This, this implication is so significant, not only for Samuel, but for us. If God reveals himself in his word and has instructed us to carry out that word to the ends of the earth, what should we do? Exactly that. We cannot withhold the message and keep it to ourselves. God's word demands to be proclaimed. But there's a fifth and final implication that we see here in this passage in verses 19 to 21. That the proclamation of God's word reveals God himself. So Samuel passes this message on to Eli. Then in verse 19 it says, Thus Samuel grew... And Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. So all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. See, by the end of this chapter, the people of God have a prophet. God has a, a mouthpiece to communicate and speak to his people. 
And Samuel is recognized as a prophet by the entire nation. Everybody looks and, and realizes that Samuel is a man sent from God. And as one who is going to proclaim the word of God. And if you look a little bit closer at verse 21, it says, The Lord appeared because he revealed himself, namely to Samuel at Shiloh, and by the word of Yahweh. See, God reveals himself to his people through his word. And that's what we need to understand. And this is God's plan of change uh, for the nation of Israel. And this is God's plan of change in our own lives here and today. Sometimes we don't, we don't give too much thought to, to methods uh, and how we accomplish something. And, and really methodology, whether you are an individual, a business, or a church, how you do what you do is going to communicate also about what you truly believe. Methods are the, the way that we get things done. What we see in marriage is a collision of two individuals who have different methods of doing things, different methodologies. And, and once it's those, those who get married need to have identical methods in terms of how, and discussions about how are we going to spend money, how are we going to raise children, how are we going to disciple them. But then there's other areas in marriage where there's room for discussion. Right? There's going to be probably lots of discussion of those who first get married about how are we going to fold clothes. Each of you had a different way of folding clothes. You bring that into marriage. How are you going to squeeze the toothpaste? How are you going to load the dishwasher? Right? All of these uh, methodologies that you've lived with and you don't even realize that you had a, a method to it. You just That's the only way to do it, right? Uh, and th- there's room for discussion on all of those smaller things. But what we need to realize is that we cannot discuss or reason and argue and debate with God about his methods. God, in his infinite wisdom, always chooses the best methods. And God has said over and over again that the best way for him to reveal himself to all people throughout time and space and history is to reveal himself through his word. God gave his word to his people through prophets who wrote down what he said. And what was originally proclaimed to the nation of Israel, we now have in our hands before us. The written word of God so that he can be revealed to us years and years later. There's a well-known book that I would recommend. It may seem really, really basic. It's called How to Read a Book. Like, wait, that, a book on how to read a book. Yes, it's important. And I, I read it years ago, and th- there was a, a simple statement that the author presented, and I was like, wow, that, that, that's remarkable to, to think about. I mean, you, you kind of realize it under the surface, but this is profound, or I found it profound. You may say, duh. But the author's point was that listening to someone teach is listening or learning from a teacher who is present with you, uh, and reading a book is learning from a teacher who's absent. And the word of God is both of these. In our passage, Israel received God's word through the prophet Samuel. uh, And to us today, God's word is written down. But God is still a teacher in both of those situations. Uh, And and here was the, the author's point in that book, How to Read a Book. That the author of a book is the teacher of the reader. The author of a book is the teacher of the reader. And when we read the Bible, God is our teacher. He is the one who is going to be instructing us. He is the one that we are gaining wisdom and insight and the one whom we are learning from. And so when you sit down and read the Bible, are are you prepared to hear from the living God? Are you ready to hear from him? Do you approach the Bible in that way? When we come and gather together, do you understand that as, as the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and handled uh, by the preacher, that you are hearing from God's word, God's own uh, instructions? It was God's word through Samuel that was going forth to Israel. And also understand that when you, if you go out and carry that, that message of the gospel... That God is revealing himself through your words to others. If you are faithful in proclaiming that message of the gospel, you yourself are a preacher, are a proclaimer. You're representing God and uh, making him known. This is how God reveals himself. This is the method that he has ordained and that he has blessed. 
And you're able to hear from God as an individual through His Word. You're not going to hear Him in, in dreams and visions or neon signs. But He's going to get your attention through His Word. That's even what we're going to, to see uh, as we continue in our study of John's Gospel. Jesus says that the Spirit is going to be sent and the Spirit is going to bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has taught. Uh, that's what the Spirit does. It has a ministry of reminding what we see here is in this last implication in 1 Samuel 3 really should give us the greatest hope when we feel distant from God. Right? When we feel distant from God and, we, and disconnected from Him, what we need to do is we need to go to Him in His Word. We need to pursue Him. When there's an absence of the Word in our life, the natural result is we're going to feel distant from Him and estranged from Him. When we feel uh, distant when we feel ashamed because of our sin, we can run to the Word. We can run to God in prayer. We can be assured of uh, our forgiveness uh, by and in and through Christ because of what God's Word proclaims to us. Uh, and it gives us this, this wonderful, wonderful assurance. Uh, and what we see here in, in this chapter is these five implications of what's the significance that God has revealed Himself to us in th- this book what we have in front of us. We have these five implications. And these implications are really like the, the fine print in a, in a long document. Right? If you've ever signed mortgage papers or signed for, for school loans or other, thing, other legal documents, what's usually the most important wording on that document? It's written in the smallest lettering, right? Why do they do that? Those are all of the, the, the important implications. By signing this, here's all of what you're also signing up for. And this, this, is, this is the fine print. If we're going to look to Christ in faith, if we're going to look to God and we're going to receive His Word uh, as it is written here, here are the implications. We know that God reveals Himself in His Word. We are obligated then to see and understand that the absence of God's Word is an indication of our disobedience. That we're not walking with Him. It's an indication that we are dependent upon ourselves rather than upon Him. The fine print implications of God speaking through His Word also means that we need to respond to it. That we will either receive it or we will reject it. And either way, we will give an account. The fine print of God's Word means that the judgment of God should, should give us chills. It should make our ears tingle. If we believe it and trust God's word to be true, we need to respond to his promises of judgment. We know the message of God's word demands to be proclaimed. That we need to, to see and understand that we are called to reach our family, our neighbors, our co-workers with the gospel. That we need to go and proclaim to them. We can't hold that message in. Because again, one day we're going to have to give an account. We cannot be silent. And if we understand that last implication, that the proclamation of God's word reveals God himself, we will approach the scriptures with reverence. Uh, And we will understand that as we come and read the Bible, it is God who is teaching us. He is the one uh, who is giving us our instructions, our marching orders. And we are to obey all that it uh, proclaims uh, and trust all that it says. This is what we have to, to realize, the implications of the fine print of the Scriptures. Uh, and we need to, to wrestle with that. Maybe there's one of those that you haven't believed fully. Maybe there's one that you are dragging your feet to obey. But these are all the implications of God revealing Himself to His people through His Word. May we heed them and obey them. Amen?